The Florida man returns with a special counsel and a decision on tax returns, and Nancy Pelosi departs with a standing ovation. That and the midterm results on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Link to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 395 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. We hardly had time to digest what happened on November 8th, stunning results with Democrats doing far better than anyone expected, when more bombshells hit. On Tuesday, Donald Trump launched his third bid for the presidency. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. The announcement was not a surprise, but the timing was. It came one week after Trump and Trumpism were, in many instances, repudiated by the voters. Many candidates who ran as election deniers, especially in the cases of those running for Secretary of State in places like Arizona, Nevada, and Michigan, were defeated. Carrie Lake, the Republican nominee for governor of Arizona and a leading Trumpian election denier, still refuses to concede that she lost. Our election officials failed us miserably. What happened to Arizonans on election day is unforgivable. Tens of thousands of Maricopa County voters were disenfranchised. Rest assured, I have assembled the best and brightest legal team, and we are exploring every avenue to correct the many wrongs that have been done this past week. Candidates that were recruited and backed by Trump, often against more moderate Republicans in the primaries, lost on the 8th. President Biden's early November speech, in which he exclaimed that the election was a referendum on democracy, a not-too-veiled attack on Trump, and which, by the way, was panned by many observers who said he should have instead focused on the economy and pocketbook issues, apparently made a big difference. As did the Supreme Court's ruling that overturned the road decision. Pundits had concluded that Democrats spent too much time on abortion rights and not enough on the price of gasoline and the situation at the border. But it turned out that the Dobbs decision sent an overwhelming number of pro-choice voters to the polls. But the fascinating event that happened on November 8th and the days following was the stunning rejection of Donald Trump as the unchallenged leader in the Republican Party. Some have blamed his obsession over his 2020 defeat and how it was stolen from him as the reason. But he's been saying that for two years, and Republicans showed no sign of abandoning him. What changed? Part of it was that the Republicans looked in the mirror on the Wednesday after the election and couldn't believe what they saw. Everyone predicted a GOP wave, and there was little evidence of it. Part of it was also how Trump responded to the re-election of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. DeSantis's landslide win was one of the true bright spots for the GOP this year. But that didn't sit well for Trump, who sees DeSantis as a rival and feels he's an ingrate for not appreciating what Trump did for him in his first election four years ago. This was Trump on News Nation. I got him the nomination. He didn't get it. I got it. Because the minute I made that endorsement, he got it. Then he ran, and he wasn't supposed to be able to win. I did two rallies. We had 
52,000 people each one, and we ended up, he won. And I thought that he could have been more gracious, but that's up to him. Trump actually said this about DeSantis to a group of reporters on his plane, as reported by the Wall Street Journal, quote, If he runs, he runs. If he did run, I will tell you things about him that won't be very flattering. I know more about him than anybody other than perhaps his wife, who was really running his campaign. And this was Trump in early November, talking about polls for the 2024 Republican nomination and mocking other Republicans in the process. It was a bit pathetic. Today, I have the highest poll numbers I've ever had, perhaps partly because the Democrats are doing so badly running our country and people want our tremendous success of no inflation, energy independence, military victory. Remember, I defeated ISIS 100%. Remember? Al-Baghdadi and so many other things, including crime. We had it weighed down. But we have the best poll numbers. Where are they? Are they putting them up on the screen? I think so. Put them up. Look. Yeah, we're putting them up. We're winning. We're winning big, big, big in the Republican Party for the nomination like nobody's ever seen before. Let's see. There it is. Trump at 71. Rhonda Sanctimonious at 10%. Mike Pence at 7. Oh, Mike's doing better than I thought. His assault on the biggest Republican winner on Election Day, added to the fact that Trump didn't help his party at all, led to former allies turning on him. The very bottom of the front page of Rupert Murdoch's New York Post, on the day Trump was scheduled to declare his candidacy, had this tiny header, quote, Florida man makes announcement, end of quote. Murdoch has made it clear that he thinks DeSantis is the party's future, but remember, for all those people cheering on the post-cheeky headline and Murdoch's change of heart, there has been no bigger booster of Trump these past seven years than the New York Post, through both elections and the two impeachments and the aftermath of 2020. In fact, the tabloid was a Trump mouthpiece for years, well before he became a candidate. There's no way of knowing how permanent this break from Trump is. Surely, had the Republicans had a big night on November 8th, everybody would be kissing Trump's ring. But they didn't, and they're not. And that has made other Republicans less afraid than ever to respond to Trump's taunts. This was DeSantis, whom the New York Post headliners called the future, shortly after the election. All that's just noise. And really what matters is, are you leading? Are you getting in front of issues? Uh, are you delivering results for people? And are you standing up for folks? And if you do that, then none of that stuff matters. And, and that's what we've done. We focused on results and leadership. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I would just uh, tell people to go check out the scoreboard from last Tuesday night. You know, the fact of the matter is we um, it, it was the, the, the greatest uh, Republican victory in the history of the state of Florida. Murdoch may have guessed right. We'll be watching to see what the Justice Department special counsel, Jack Smith, will uncover, be it regarding the classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago or Trump's role in the insurrection of January 6th. Trump will no doubt try to incite his acolytes into hysteria, and Elon Musk welcoming him back to Twitter may be part of that strategy. But it's also a fool's errand to bet against Donald Trump. We did that in 2016, and yet he won. He was twice impeached, but didn't lose support among the Republican rank and file. 
2020 election denialism is widespread in the GOP. This time, however, there will be opposition in the party. This time, there will be an alternative for conservative voters. This time, just maybe, he can shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and not get away with it. Loved you all the summer through I thought I'd found my dream in you For me, you were the one But that was yesterday And yesterday's gone We have a fascinating show this week with some special guests, and the only way to assemble the show is to present them in the order of the recordings. Our separate conversations with former Republican Congressman Vin Weber and Democratic pollster Anna Greenberg came shortly after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced she would step down from her party's leadership. This week, we spoke to Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown about what's next for the Democrats, as well as his own plans for re-election in 2024. And we ended with GOP strategist Mike Murphy, who weighed the news about the special counsel and the Supreme Court's refusal to block the release of his tax returns and decided that the party may really be looking for a divorce, which would be Trump's third. The last time we heard from Vin Weber, the former congressman from Minnesota and a leading Republican strategist, he was supporting President Trump for re-election in 2020. Four years earlier, he avoided Trump altogether. Now Trump is back for a third campaign. The Republicans had a poorer showing in the midterm elections than many expected, and so it's time for another check-in with Vin Weber. Vin, it's been a long time, and uh, welcome back to The Political Junkie. It has been a long time, but it's always good to be with you, Ken, and I enjoy being on the political jockey. Well, thank you. I I always love hearing you know having you on, and I've had you on so many elections over the past. And you know, even when the things go well for your party or poorly for your party, your mood still seems upbeat. Well, you're nice to say that, but you certainly have identified a problem trend in our society. People are downbeat and angry, and and uh, the number of uh, of people that don't want anything to do with somebody of the opposite political party is increasing all the time. That's and that it's not ext- it would be bad enough if we were just in the Congress of the United States, but I think it's uh, true right down to the neighborhood level. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And and you left you left Congress after the 90, 1992 elections, and I mean that seems like a million years ago. It sure does, and and uh, I, I talk every now and then to people that I served with, and some that have served even since then, and. It's a different. It's a different political town. Right? It's not just that the House of Representatives is different, or the, even that's just the Congress is different. The entire Washington political information establishment is quite different. And it's sad because I mean, once upon a time, serving in office, serving in Congress was a, a, a you know a wonderful public service, and now and now you're you know damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? Yeah, exactly right. Well, let me say something, uh, a, a, a positive note, which will surprise you coming from me as a Republican, but 
one of the best tributes to public service from a member of Congress I've ever heard was Nancy Pelosi's speech yesterday on the floor of the House as she announced that she's not running for re-election as Speaker. She, uh, she really paid tribute to all the past members of the House. Both political parties talked about the institution as opposed to individuals or parties, and I, I just thought she, uh, you know, Nancy and I served together. I did not vote with her very often, but I thought in terms of talking about how people should feel about the institution of Congress. That was really a beautiful tribute that she uh, paid yesterday. You know, I agree with you completely. And I noticed uh, also yesterday a tweet from John Boehner, who said basically the same thing. We weren't on the same side, but but you served, you know, with honor and, and dignity. Yeah, I, thought, I completely agreed. You know, after I left Congress, uh, one of the things I did, that which I think you remember, Ken, I, I was the chairman of the National Endowment for Democracy for eight years uh, during the Bush administration, the first, the second Bush administration. And we reached out regularly to get support from both parties for promoting democracy and human rights around the world. And I just have to say, there, there was no member of Congress in either party that was more consistently supportive of our efforts to promote democracy around the world than Nancy Pelosi, and I appreciated it very much. That's tremendous. Anyway, um, let, let me start off with a little bit about Donald Trump. I mean, fairly, fairly or not, I think his legacy was riding on the 20 midterms in some way. I mean, you know, his continuing refusal to acknowledge his loss to Joe Biden has led other candidates to refuse to accept the results, you know, if they lost their elections. Kerry Lake in Arizona is probably the most prominent. Um, Trump made many significant endorsements in the primaries. And other than a few disappointments, you know, like Georgia or Nebraska, for example, his candidates won. Uh, J.D. Vance in Ohio, Blake Masters and, and Kerry Lake in Arizona, Mehmet Oz, Doug Mastriano, Ted Budd in North Carolina, you know, candidates like that. But many of his candidates lost in the general election, you know, last week. And, and voters seem to be saying, I think uh, Mitch McConnell said it too, that the quality of candidates, especially in the Senate, was lacking. So I think I want to lead with this. What role do you think Trump played in the midterms, and does he deserve any of the blame or, or credit for what happened? Well, uh, he he pursued, I think, first of all, you've described it pretty well, Ken, but he, he, he pursued a different path than certainly than any former president I can think of in deciding to get involved in primaries. In fact, most presidents don't get, former presidents don't decide to get very heavily involved, even in general elections. I mean, this time we did see uh, former President Obama campaigning for the Democrats at the end. But by and large, former presidents of both parties have stayed out. Donald Trump waded right in. So you can count that as a plus for him or a minus for him, depending on your view of what the role of a former president should be. But that's, that's what he did. Uh, he certainly had the impact that you described in the primaries. Um, and I want to say, I, I don't know that all of those candidates were quote unquote low quality. What I do know is that by pursuing a path to the, to their own nominations that relied heavily on a high profile Trump endorsement coupled with their own denial of the election of 2020, it gave, it did not afford them the opportunity to grow into the position of a serious contender. Uh, and again, I, some of them probably were great candidates. Some of them probably were not, but it wouldn't have mattered because they were they were defined by Trump and by the his insistence that they deny that the election of 2020 was legitimate. 
Um, who knows? Maybe maybe Dr. Oz would have won if he hadn't had to do that. I don't know. But uh, but I think that that was the impact. But then, uh, having decided to get in all those races uh, and pick so many candidates, with the Republicans expecting a huge wave, and we all did, and I did too, I mean, based on past indicators like the relationship between the president's approval rating and the normal uh, outcome in the midterm election and the impact of inflation on electoral politics for the party of the president. It was reasonable to expect a big Republican victory, and it didn't happen. And, you know, you sort of, it's, uh, I hate to drop too many cliches, but, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. If Trump, if we'd had a big win, all of Trump's candidates would have been attributed to him. And he would have been the, the big winner. Instead, he takes the loss. Yeah, isn't it funny that that, that like uh, two weeks ago, everybody said, "Oh yes, this is Donald Trump's party. The Republican Party is Donald Trump's party." And then, I mean, we, <laughs> I saw the Murdoch uh, New York Post headline that was on the you know on the bottom of the page. It said, "Florida man to announce plans." You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I well, saw that. I saw that. Uh, that. That got a lot of play around the internet too. It was, it was, I thought that was very funny. I, and, you know, I know he was not, I mean, I think his closest advisors, I am told, were advising him, please don't announce right now. Uh, let the dust settle a little bit on the last election. Let the Georgia runoff take place. Let the uh, the contested uh, House elections be settled and and then do whatever you're going to do. But he, uh, he, he would not uh, follow that advice. And so, he not only, uh, I mean, he picked the bad timing at, at the very minimum. I know that the results of, uh, you know, the midterm results were a split bag. You know, Democrats keep the Senate, Republicans win the House. But, but as you say, you know, with Biden's approval numbers awful, you know, with inflation, the worst in 40 years, with the poorest border, and with history on their side, you know, as the, part, the out party, Republicans sure. were expected to do much better. Um, so, I mean, what would you, how would you describe what happened uh, last Tuesday? Well, I was, it, was, it was a huge disappointment. There, there, all the factors that you and I have just talked about, the history, impact of inflation, president's approval rating, uh, as well as the other key issues that were identified by the various pollsters as being paramount in people's minds, all pointed to a big Republican victory. So you've got to say... Something happened that was unexpected. Something happened that was sort of unprecedented. And I, you know, there's a there's a couple of things that most of us very conventional observers of politics missed. One was the indeed the impact of the abortion issue. You know, abortion has been an issue before, but it's never been a national voting issue driving masses of voters. It's been a, a, a if you will, a narrow caste issue where a select number of voters on each side of it may decide their vote based on abortion, pro-choice, or pro-life. The, the whole nature of the way that that issue unfolded was unexpected to, again, I have to say, us conventional folks that, people, that look at the things the way they always been and say they're going to stay the same way. No, that was new. And the other one was the, uh, the uh, president's development of the democracy issue, which, in my view, was that, that was Trump. He was, when he was talking about democracy, he was talking about Trump and January 6th and election deniers. And I, again, thought, you know, because that's a new that 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 was not something that you could look to for with historical precedent. I didn't think it was going to happen, but it did. And those two things, pardon the pun, trumped the normal conventional indicators, which should have led to a Republican victory. 
And it's, it's, it doesn't matter that it's unconventional. Uh, the Democrats won, and they deserve to, be, to, to have credit for it. Now, having said all that, when the dust does settle, not to deny that Republicans fell way, way, way short of, of expectations and have a lot of soul-searching to do. The House of Representatives is now going to be controlled by the Republicans. And, and you, you, you have, as soon as we've digested the politics of this last election, it'll become more important to understand that the politics of the next two years have changed quite a bit. Well, you know, I, I keep thinking you left Congress before Newt Gingrich and the contract with America, but you were considered one of the architects of the House Republican takeover in 94. And that's when Republicans had a net gain of 54 seats. Right. Now it looks like Kevin McCarthy and company will have a bare majority. Do you, do you know McCarthy or are you close with him? Yes, yes. Sir. I know him quite well. Uh, he's, he, I knew him when he was a staffer for Congressman Bill Thomas from California. Uh, and I know his chief of staff, who's a good Minnesota guy named Dan Meyer. He's a friend of mine. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, know, I know Kevin quite well. What does he need to do to make a difference? I, I think the, my follow-up question would be is, because I saw this press conference right as, as Nancy Pelosi was announcing her departure from the leadership, uh, there was a press conference about Hunter Biden. And my question is, is, is investigating Hunter Biden the way to start off the Congress? And, and the second question is, how do you rein in the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gaetzes yeah. and the Lauren Boeberts? First of all, I, I, I saw the press conference with uh, Representative Comer and Representative Jordan yesterday, and I have I, I, I to say two things. First of all, I thought the timing was not good, but I thought the substance of their conference was pretty, pretty substantial. I think that the White House is simply saying that these are all debunked uh, stories from the past. It was off mark. We'll find out. But I, I thought that they had more substance to what they talked about than the Democrats are giving them credit for. But it was a very bad piece of timing to sort of define the incoming Republican Congress in terms of an investigation into basically Hunter Biden. As to the broader question, you know, uh, um, um, the opposite, an opposition majority, in other words, of a, nor- a majority that's not of the party of the president, has only a couple of really, of, of, of tools at their disposal. One is the power to investigate, which is what we've just been talking about, and that, that's about the only one that is unfettered. I mean, they, they don't have to get the president's approval to investigate. The other is, as they like to say, the power of the purse, and that's difficult and risky, because you have to, you ultimately, as we saw with Gingrich and we've seen with others, you end up, if you want to try to impose your policy preferences through the appropriations process or through the through these government spending you march up to the line of of shutting down the government and we've seen that argument recur many times over the decades almost always to the disadvantage of the party of in congress the president usually wins those arguments but it remains about the only tool that they've got so i would say a couple of things first of all with a very narrow majority and a fractious group within the house uh, republican caucus that we all know about it seems to me, this is not inside information, it seems to me that Kevin McCarthy has decided to say to them, go ahead and do whatever you want on investigations, in the hopes that he will have greater leverage with his caucus in uniting them when they actually get onto the substantive stuff of spending bills. And that, if, that's, if that indeed is his strategy, that makes sense. It's still very difficult for the Congressional Party to win an argument when the president can simply say, that Congress wants to shut down the government. 
but that we're, we're going to have those arguments because there's, there's no other way for the opposition party in Congress to try to impose its any any portion of its agenda. Um, and they, after all, campaigned on an agenda. They've got an obligation to try to get it enacted, or at least some of it. What do you make of the role that Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger played in the last Congress? Are you glad they're gone? Are you? Do you feel they played a role? Um, I don't. I don't know Kinzinger. Uh, I know Liz Cheney well, and of course I know her father and mother very well. Her dad. Her dad's office was next to mine when we were in the House of Representatives in the Cannon Building, and uh, I, 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 I'm a big fan of the Cheneys. <laughs> prior prior to Trump. The Cheneys were vilified by the Democrats. Now the Democrats seem to all like the Cheneys. Isn't that something? And the, media, and the media, and the media too. Yeah, and the media too. The media too. But I, you know, I can say I have always been a fan of the Cheneys, of Dick and of his wife and Liz. I, I don't really disagree with much of what she said about Donald Trump. I simply, the way I put it to people, I weigh the equities differently. Liz Cheney is an enormously talented person. We have issues of regulation and taxation and national security and education that I think are very important issues. And she's, uh, we could have used her talent on all those issues as, as conservatives and as Republicans and as Americans. She decided in her, as she weighed the equities, none of that was as important as Donald Trump. And I respect that decision. I disagree with it. And I lament her loss from the, from the debate on my side, if you will. Going back to, to uh, Donald Trump, what do you make of his, this apparent feud with uh, Ron DeSantis? I think it's pretty clear that they don't care for each other, especially Trump, who calls him Ron DeSanctimonious. Yeah, badly timed at best. I mean, uh, you know, he, he, he succeeded back in 2016 in attaching nicknames to people that sort of stuck, or at least it, cre- it created impressions of people like Jeb Bush, who I uh, supported in, in, that, in that election, uh, calling him low-energy Jeb, things like that. It, you know, not, not, not a tactic that you or I would like, but it, it actually had some effect. In this case, though, when you took on, on uh, uh, DeSantis, think about where we were. The Republicans had, as we've talked about in this, in this conversation, had just suffered an enormously disappointing outcome in the last election, with one huge exception. Ron DeSantis in Florida, and for the former president to immediately go out and try to ridicule and demean the one bright spot that Republicans saw in that election was just bad judgment on his part, bad political judgment, and I think it hurt him quite a bit. Let me ask you a final question. Um, After Mitt Romney lost in 2012, um, the Republican Party went through uh, its famous autopsy, you know, for what went wrong I think Trump's victory and his presidency proved that autopsy wrong. But if you were writing an autopsy for what went wrong for the GOP in 2022, what would you say? Uh, That's a good question. I'm not sure I've got an easy answer. I mean, it's easy for you if you're not running and sitting on the outside as I am to say, well, they should have run strictly on the issues of inflation, crime, and in some places the border, the southern border, and not gotten drawn into the discussions about the 2020 election. But I'm not on the ballot, and it's much harder if you're a Republican candidate and you want to win the nomination of your party, and you know that a substantial portion, perhaps a majority of your base, wants you to say that the election was not decided 
uh, properly in 2020. So, you know, my, my unvarnished advice is they should have walked away from that and just talked about inflation, crime, the border, and attack Biden. I mean, that's the way politics works. When you have an unpopular president, you go after him. But I, I stopped short of that because I'm, I'm, I wasn't running, and I sympathize with those candidates that had to go out there and talk to their grassroots supporters who wanted them to support Trump on those things. Vin Weber is a former Republican congressman from Minnesota, a longtime strategist in the GOP, and a partner in the global strategy firm of Mercury LLC. Vin, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Always great to talk to you. It is time for you to laugh instead of crying. Yes, it's For the Democrats, there's more to celebrate in the results of the 2022 midterm elections than anyone had thought. Not a single Senate seat lost, depending on what happens in Georgia, and the retention of their majority, regardless of what happens in Georgia. Election deniers around the country were defeated, especially in those races for Secretary of State. Carrie Lake in Arizona is, of course, among those denying, and still denying. But Democrats lost the House, and while the margin was far narrower than expected, the fact is Kevin McCarthy will be the new speaker. Anna Greenberg is a top-rated Democratic pollster and a senior partner at the firm of GQR, Greenberg, Quinlan, Rosner. Among their winning clients this year were Senators Mark Kelly, Michael Bennett, Maggie Hassan, and Richard Blumenthal, and Governors Michelle Lujan Grisham, Ned Lamont, J.B. Pritzker, and Governor-elect Josh Shapiro. A lot to celebrate, but questions remain. Anna Greenberg, it's wonderful having you back on the show. Glad to be here, and you left off Katie Hobbs. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, you know something? Wins. I think I only knew, yes. I, I didn't know you had Katie Hobbs as a client. You know, first of all, let me just say this. I couldn't decide whether to end the interview or lead the interview by talking about Nancy Pelosi, and obviously, I want to lead with it. How would you sum up the career of Nancy Pelosi, you know, now that she's uh, announced she won't be seeking a leadership position in the next Congress? My friends, no matter what title you all, my colleagues, have bestowed upon me, speaker, leader, whip, there is no greater official honor for me than to stand on this floor and to speak for the people of San Francisco. This I will continue to do as a member of the House, speaking for the people of San Francisco, serving the great state of California, and defending our Constitution. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. And I'm grateful that so many are ready and willing to shoulder this awesome responsibility. Well, I think I reflect the consensus out there, including among Republicans, that she's one of, you know, uh, in, our, in our nation's history, one of the most effective speakers, you know, ever. Um, you know, I was saying to someone, like, the most effective woman leader ever. I'm like, no, effective leader ever, not just woman, anyone ever, not just, not just women. I don't think what happened um, last week would have been possible without her. Um, the way that she was able to, not just in this last Congress, but in general over the last 16, 17 years, hold Democrats together, 
to produce wins that no one ever thought was possible, to produce accomplishments that were both real and affected people's lives, but also gave us stuff to talk about in elections, to her fundraising. I mean, she single-handedly raised hundreds of millions of dollars for, you know, house races. I mean, there's just, in, in so many dimensions, some of which people really aren't that aware of, she just has been the heart and soul, honestly, of the Democratic Party. And, you know, we've had Democratic presidents when she's been Speaker, but their success, um, in part, is rests upon her success in corralling, you know, a caucus that's pretty diverse um, and, in, and, some, and, in some points, very, very thin majorities. And she was able to stay true to her values while also understanding when to compromise and, when to, and how to push things through. I mean, she was, you know, a bit like Tip O'Neill in, in that respect, but also um, a genuinely good person. Right. And, you know, one of the, you know, one of the things that she withstood for so many years was, you know, being the subject of every single ad running against Democrat. You know, she was the most evil person ever. And she just always handled it with such grace. You know, she has been the subject of more ads in races I've been involved in and more you know, nefarious and unfair and certainly culminating in her husband being attacked. And she's just always the model of grace and calmness. And I thought actually in January 6th, uh, the January 6th commission, when they showed some of the behind the scenes video and all these men are standing around while she's making sure Mike Pence is okay. You know, I mean, she's, she's just sort of all around a good, smart, principled, effective person and was able to wield that power, uh, honestly, to the, I think the good of this country. Did she make the right decision? Well, personally, I'd have her be speaker for life, so you're probably asking the wrong person. Um, but, you know, probably. I mean, I think that I think that there was a lot of restlessness in the caucus, um, and I think that she did a really good job, I think, of, I don't want to say um, grooming, because I think, you know, people like Hakeem Jeffries and are people who had their own careers and, and, and made their own paths, so I don't want to suggest that she anointed anybody, but I think she did a good job sort of thinking about the future of the party, and I think that the new leadership is sober and responsible and pragmatic and progressive and all those things. And, you know, you look at the Republicans and the chaos there. Uh, I think that, you know, she's leaving at the right time, but also leaving the caucus in good shape, which I, and, and, you know, leaving the caucus that is much more diverse, you know, racially, ideologically, in terms of gender than when she got it. And I think, um, I think that her legacy will be a model, right, for how to, how to run that caucus. You know, I don't think it really matters why she, she announced her decision. I'm, you know, of course, the Democrats lost the majority. It was time for a change. Um, the attack on her husband. Regarding the attack on Paul Pelosi, I mean, Republicans thought that was a laugh riot. I mean, you look at the comments from yeah. Glenn Youngkin and uh, Carrie Lake and I was going to say Donald Trump Jr. I mean, I don't expect much of Jr., but other Republicans should have known better. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, to me, it just fed into a narrative about who they are. I mean, I think it's a, a big part of why Republicans um, did not take back the Senate and certainly did not do as well in the House um, as they had hoped was a larger narrative about who they were. And they are people who, um, you know, are out of step with human decency and democratic norms. And while I don't know that any voter would talk about it in those specific terms, much of what happened last week was a reaction to kind of a party that just doesn't operate under the same set of rules as most normal people do. When President Biden was talking about the threat to democracy, in some ways the attack on Paul Pelosi was also a threat to democracy, given the fact that the attendant target was Nancy Pelosi. And that, I mean, violence is, whether it's January 6th or, or Paul Pelosi, it's, it's frightening. 
It is, and I think that one thing that the Republicans have done is normalize violence to some degree, because I can't, I mean, when it happened and afterwards, I thought the Speaker of the House's spouse was just attacked with a hammer, and it's like a two-day story, right? I mean, I just can't get my head around that. You know, like, she's in line for the presidency, you know, if you know, the spouse of the vice president or the spouse of the president. I mean, and it was, and it's just that there's a normalization around political violence that, you know, has been, it's always been there to some degree from in the far right, um, you know, going back to Oklahoma City, but, um, but certainly in the current period, it's been normalized that something like this is sort of a shrug. I mean, it wasn't a shrug for everybody, but it wasn't, I'm sort of shocked. Yeah, I mean, I remember after the shooting of Steve Scalise, first of all, Democrats didn't make jokes. And I think it was Nancy Pelosi who said at the time, that an attack on one of our members is an attack on all of us. I mean, she... Right, because she's a normal, decent person. <laughs> like, that's how you're supposed to act when things like this happen. I was thinking of this also, that that one of Tim Ryan's bullet points when he was uh, running for the Senate in Ohio was that he challenged Pelosi for speaker. I mean, I remember there was a time when some members of the Democratic caucus had had enough of her, wanted her gone, and, and they would say so. I mean, that was part of their campaign promise or something, but... But as you say, I mean, for the most part, she managed to keep the Democrats not only united, but especially during the time when she constantly stood up to Donald Trump. Right. And by the way, I'll just say that that whole not voting for Pelosi thing was always symbolic and it was always a way to try to show that you were more moderate or that you would stand up to the party. But it was all cynical. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? It was it was a, for, in many cases, it was a campaign tactic to try to separate yourself. It wasn't about really thinking she wasn't a good leader or something like that. It was, it was very, very cynical. And I always thought it was dumb because it never works. I mean, you know, I don't, sort of saying I won't vote for her isn't going to help. It doesn't mean they aren't going to run hundreds of ads against you uh, saying you're Nancy Pelosi's clone, morphing your face into her face. There are some people who are genu- genuinely and authentically disagree with the party and, you know, no one believes it. Like, you know, I think that not many people think, you may not like Joe Manchin, but I don't think anyone thinks he's faking it, <laughs> that he's more conservative, right? And so I think it's sort of, he's authentically, whether it's because he's, because of the industries that are in, you know, West Virginia or et cetera. And so people like that can, can do things like that. But any random member of Congress that can't say, like, I stood up to the Biden administration when they, you know, indeed voted for every single Biden priority. It's always... You really have to actually genuinely have an area where you've stood up and people know you have and they understand why to believe that you'll buck your own party, like a John McCain, for example. People genuinely, authentically thought he would buck his party if he thought they were doing the wrong thing. But most people can't do that. Do you have a favorite Pelosi moment? Well, um, two. The the first, obviously, was... um, and, and, and one of them is quite personal, but when she became speaker for the second time, uh, my kids were up on the podium, and that was really fun. You know, she invited all the kids to come up, right? And because uh, my stepmother's a member of Congress and kids under the age of 12 can be on the floor swearing in, my kids were down there. So that was, you know, to have to see her, you know, get the gavel and all the kids and my kids, that was pretty spectacular. Um, my second was when she ripped up Trump's speech. I just, I, that moment uh, is just, well, uh, just amazing. <laughs> just uh, sending such a clear message <laughs> about what she thought in a very dignified and yet dramatic way about what she thought of that horrible State of Union speech she gave. Angry, ugly, petty speech she gave. Pelosi, uh, Steny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, they're all in their 80s. What do, you, what do you make of the likely new Democratic team of uh, Hakeem Jeffries and Catherine Clark? 
I mean, look, they are all, you know, serious, you know, relatively long-term members who are smart. You know, they're, they're, they're politically smart, they're policy smart, they're not bomb throwers. I think it's, you know, they're just diverse without feeling like you're checking off boxes. You know, I think it's pretty brilliant. Um, obviously, it's going to be harder to hold the caucus together in the next couple of years for a variety of reasons, but not the least of which is that Pelosi's not there anymore, <laughs> and no one, no one did it better than her, but I think that this is a team that feels very well prepared to kind of take on, and certainly, in, in, you know, there, there may well be instances where, if McCarthy's the, indeed the, the speaker, where they need to do things like raise the debt ceiling, and they need all the Democrats to do it and get a few Republicans, and I think, you know, Pelosi was brilliant at figuring out when Democrats should do things for the country, right? But also just the political game. And, and I think that they seem like people are well-equipped to, to figure those things out, too. Well, as I was saying earlier, you know, with going over the results of uh, last week's election, Democrats obviously have to be pleased with how close the battle for the House was, given the, the widespread prediction of, you know, 20 to 30 seat loss, given President Biden's poor approval numbers, given the economy, given the history, right, of midterm elections. But sure. at the same time, it means that Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert are, are in the majority, and they'll be running investigations of Hunter Biden and Dr. Fauci and Billy Saul Estes. You know, so tell me your thoughts about what happened in the House. And I also want to talk about, I want you to talk about what role you think the Dobbs decision and abortion played. Sure. Well, of course, they have a majority, a very thin majority. I think they'll be very ineffective in the majority for all the reasons that everybody knows about. But I think that this is such a precarious majority that really only came about because of redistricting failure in New York. <laughs> and I think the failure of um, the, the, the Democratic Party and the DCCC to really understand the Dobbs moment and understand that that expanded what was possible for Democrats. And so there was a lot of um, disparity in spending in the last month. Um, a lot of races that ended up being, you know, competitive, and we knew were competitive, where there was no investment either from the party or from the super PACs. And honestly, there's some money printing machine, you know, that the Republicans have, and the amount of money that they were able to dump in October, you know, on Democrats was mind blowing. And there was no way you could one up them. You know, they throw in a million, you put a million, they put in two million, right? I mean, in the last week, you know, they, in, in Arizona, they were dumping three to seven million dollars at a pop going after Mark Kelly and, and Katie Hobbs. And so I think that, you know, part of why that majority is precarious for Republicans is not just because it's very thin, it's because, honestly, but for New York, screw, New York Democrats screwing up or just saying, I don't want to have the majority. Um, so, and that's really an astonishing result, given everything that you just said. I, I am on cloud nine. I think this was a huge victory for democracy and a huge victory for Democrats. Even losing the, the even losing the house, I still think it's one of the most consequential elections in my lifetime. Because I believe that had Republicans won the Senate and the House, you know, and or won these Secretary of State's races in these battleground states, that our democracy would be on even shakier ground. And I think this was a real message that was sent to the Republican Party that Americans actually would like to live in a democracy that's peaceful, <laughs> um, that is predictable, that's normal, um, that people do not want the chaos and uncertainty and let alone, you know, political violence. So I, I'm jubilant over this, even even though Republicans have a thin majority in the House, and I don't think they'll be able to do anything, both because they don't have the Senate and the presidency, and because I think they're going to, you know, internally implode. 
Can I ask you a question uh, talking about the New York redistricting? I understand that, you know, of course, New York control, uh, the Democrats control everything in New York, and a lot of people thought they would have their way with the lines. They're going to, you know, redraw, redraw Elise Stefanik and others, you know, out of their seats. And, and of course, they couldn't. What happened in New York was the, um, the Republicans and the Cuomo appointees to the court throughout the Democratic map. So there were Cuomo appointees that did it. And, um, you know, Cuomo, as governor, was about Cuomo, right? He was actually not about progressive change or building the Democratic Party. So it's not a surprise to me at all that his appointees threw out the map. I think that probably the Democrats who drew the map overreached and probably should have done a little bit less as to not create, you know, the circumstances under which the court would throw it out and then redraw the lines. So I think there was a miscalculation on the part of the people who drew the lines, but also dealing with a court with, uh, with Cuomo appointees who threw out. We have a Republican House and a Democratic Senate. What does that portend for the next two years of the Biden presidency? Well, I think that it's going to be, um, obviously, not much is going to get done. There'll, there'll be some bare minimums that have to happen. I mean, even if the Republicans are threatening not to deal with the debt ceiling at the end of the day, you know, it's not good for them to own government shutdown or default on our debts, um, as Nick Gingrich and others have learned. And Ted Cruz have learned over the years that shutting down the government is never, <laughs> never, never ends well for the people who shut it down. And so I think you'll have some basic things that keep the country, you know, functioning and the government functioning. You know, obviously have a lot of um, judicial nominees, uh, especially if Warnock wins, and then you've got majority on the Judiciary Committee. Um, you'll get a lot, uh, a lot of judges, you know, probably outpace what Trump was able to do. But I think, you know, this will be much more about the presidential race and the posturing of the president and the Senate sort of against the folks in the House. And I think if if they can't control themselves, which so far they, they don't seem to be able to, and all they're going to do is investigate Hunter Biden, I don't think that sets them up particularly well to sort of make their case uh, at the presidential level, right? I think it's going to be more of what people rejected. I mean, I think... 2022 was a rejection of that kind of politics. Doesn't mean it isn't going to keep happening, but it was a rejection of that. And so I don't think it's going to serve Republicans terribly well. And of course, we're also going to, Trump's already announced, we're going to have, you know, all Trump all the time, you know, for the next year and a half. I don't know. I don't want to say two years because he might not win the primary, (laughs) Um, but certainly at least the next year and a half, we're going to have, you know, all Trump all the time. So I think Substantively, what happens in Congress is going to be pretty minimal. We may have Merrick Garland all the time as well. Yes, and but that'll all be through the lens of Trump grievance too, right? And I mean, and look, I think that more Trump is not good for Republicans. I mean, I think Trump was absolutely on the ballot in 2022, and um, Trump, abortion, election integrity, Democratic norms were all on the ballot in 2022, and voters said, you know, we don't want it. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you the the obvious final question. I mean, regarding. The president's plans for 24. If, if this year's elections turned out to be a total rejection of him, I think that might have given him pause about running again. And that didn't happen. Uh, far from it, actually. So what do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I have no particular insight. I have no inside information or insight of what's going to happen. I believe him when he says he's running again. I don't know why he wouldn't right, run again. Well, he'll be um, particularly in his 80. Given what happened. He turns 80 well, later this month. Sure. Well, post he's 82. Um, <laughs> you know, so she did it for two more years. So I don't, I believe him when he says he's going to running. And I don't, again, I don't see why he wouldn't unless he felt physically and mentally unable um, to do it. And I think also there's probably a lot of nervousness about what happens if he doesn't run. But I honestly have no particular insight. And I think as long as he says he's running, 
you know, that actually puts a spotlight on Trump and DeSantis and all that sort of stuff. So the longer, in some ways, the longer he sort of says he's running, in some ways it might be better. I think a Democratic primary for president is complicated, and we've got actually a much better bench than, than the Republicans do, but, um, you know, could could be, I think, you know, there's a lot of interest in not having a, <laughs> a Democratic primary while the Republicans have one, and I wouldn't underestimate um, how good that could be for Democrats. Anna Greenberg is a leading Democratic pollster and a senior partner at the firm of GQR, Greenberg, Quinlan, Rosner. Anna, well, congratulations on a far better showing for the Democrats than anyone expected, except for you. Congratulations on the clients you <laughs> <just> won. me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and remember, uh, here's the good news. 2024 starts now. I don't know if that's good, but thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you, Anna. Thanks so much. As we pointed out, this year turned unexpectedly into a success for the Democratic Party. Of course, they, had, they certainly had their share of disappointments. One of the biggest ones came in the Ohio Senate race, where Congressman Tim Ryan ran what was perhaps the best effort a Democrat could do in the increasingly Republican Buckeye state. But he still lost to Republican J.D. Vance by 264,000 votes. There was a time not long ago when Ohio had two Democratic senators, John Glenn and Howard Metzenbaum, and the GOP was unable to dislodge either one. That Ohio is no longer recognizable, with one exception. Sherrod Brown, the progressive Democrat who is currently in his third Senate term. This week, he's making a return appearance to the political junkie to talk about where things stand in his party, in his state, in the country. Senator Brown, it's great having you back on the program. Good. Oh, you, you, thank you, Ken. Good to be with you. And we've talked many times over the years in different formats. But you said not that long ago with Glenn and Metzenbaum. I, I don't know exactly what that means. It was, yes, it was yesterday. It's been, you know, yesterday. Well, two and a half decades, interpreted <laughs> as yesterday. Really? But the, the evolution of my state hasn't been quite that rapid. But, or the, you know, anyway, but go ahead. So thank you for having me. Well, anyway, as long as we're going into the recent uh, past, happy birthday, by the way, November 9th. Thank you. My birthday can never be on Election Day, and it's, it can, it, the latest it can be is November 8th. So, but anyway, yeah, it was a good celebration today. Catherine Cortez Masto that was the not big one. quite won by that day, but we held the Senate, and that was great news for the country. So with few exceptions, Democrats have been heralding you know, the results uh, as a great success. How do you see what happened on November 8th? Well, it was a success when when most of the media were saying that the Democrats were going to lose big or even lose in a tsunami is the word that comes up every two or four years. Democrats were saying yeah, it too. Some, some Democrats were saying it. Some weren't, but correct. Yeah, it was, and it was the off year, mid year, midterm of a new president. It was um, an economy that wasn't great. Um, good on jobs, not so good on inflation, terrible on inflation. So um, it was a surprise, but, you know, we, we we'll, I think we'll pick up a seat in the Senate because I think Raphael Warnock will be reelected. Um, and the House was um, was clearly a lot closer. And if not for redistricting in, in New York and Cal- in New York and 
I mean, if, 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 if you look at New York, California, Florida on the Democratic side, and Florida and Texas on the Republican side, it, it would have been very different. And I would add, even though the news on the Senate and governor weren't good in Ohio, Ohio went from 12-4 Republican, very redistricted, to 10-5 Republican, a bit less redistricted. We lost one district because of, of stagnate, stagnant population. So we, did, we, we helped the cause in the House. We just didn't pick up the Senate seat that Tim Ryan ran a good campaign for. Well, let me talk about Ohio, for example. I mean, you know, they they, they painted J.D. Vance as a Trumpian extremist. Um, by all accounts, Tim Ryan ran a perfect campaign, at least everything I've seen and many people have seen. And yet the margin was 264,000 votes. What happened? Well, I... Um a number of things happened. Ohio is, is, is moving a little bit more conservative. Uh, and Ryan was simply not known at the beginning of the campaign. I mean, he was, J.D. Vance had higher name recognition at the beginning as an author. I mean, not, not universal recognition. Tim had never, Tim had only run in his, in his one out one sixteenth of the state congressional district in Northeast Ohio. So he didn't start off with name familiarity and that hurt him. Um, I think the turnout uh, the turnout among among uh, people of color and young people uh, was not what we hoped it would be. And when I when I went to campuses with Tim, one of the things you see is on every major issue that young people care about: uh, choice, marriage equality, climate change, student loans, guns, consumer protections, all those things. Young people are with Democrats, but we just got to reach them better than we do. And the lesson for me in 2024, a big part of the lesson, is we've got to reach those young voters. If I say it this way, there are only three states that Trump carried twice and have Democratic senators. Joe Manchin in West Virginia, John Tester in Montana, and, and I in Ohio. And that, that just means our hill is steep to win these races. Tim ran a good race and, and fell short. It was about a six point. The, the numbers are a little deceiving because 200 some thousand votes sounds like a lot, but it was a five or six point race in the end. So it was. It was hard. It was decisive, but hardly a landslide. Which was a, a smaller margin than what Trump won the state by, you know, both times. Correct. That's right. Exactly right. Smaller than Trump. And Trump won it by, as I said, Trump won it by eight points both times. Both times, frankly, surprising me because I, I don't, I don't entirely understand the support for him when, when he wins among working class voters in areas where everything he did from his, his appointment to Secretary of Labor was a was a, a, a labor attacking. Um, hack essentially to um, what he does every day and looking out, not looking out for working people. So we just haven't gotten that message out well enough as Democrats. You say that, you know, Ohio hasn't changed overnight. And I, I guess I, well, at least I didn't go back to Frank Lauschy, but, but I mean, the, but the point, the point is though, Bill Clinton won it twice, then George W. Bush won it twice, then Barack Obama won it twice, then Trump won it twice. So it was seen basically as a battleground state, but you know, now with two Republican senators, a Republican governor easily reelected. And yes, you know, you point out that, the, you know, it's now 10-5 in the House. Democrats beat a House Republican incumbent in Cincinnati. They held on to Tim Ryan's House seat in Akron. But, but it's still 10-5 in favor of the GOP. Now, other than gerrymandering, how do you explain the Republican dominance and how do, you, how do the Democrats fight back? Well, you can't really say other. I mean, you can say, but other than gerrymandering, I mean, they they have their they they, they win forty five, forty six, forty seven, forty eight percent of the statewide vote, yet have a two one, two to one or bigger margin for the stiffer state state house, state senate, 
And Congress, and, and, and what's insidious about that is it builds their farm team and robs us from the chance of building a farm team. So they have a, they have a wider range of candidates to choose from to run for higher office. But interesting, every single member of Congress, I believe, I'm pretty sure this is true, um, for every Republican member of Congress in the last decade, including this election, every Republican statewide uh, office holder, including this election, is a white man. All, all 25 of them, or whatever the number of those that have held these seats. And so they're, they're a narrow party, but they've got a farm system, they've got more money, they've got more name recognition, they've got, and I'm, I'm not whining here, I'm just trying to explain it, um, but we ran a good crop of candidates this year, and I think the winning some of those congressional seats showed that, but we're, we're up against these numbers. And to tell you how they're really doing it, we plan to go to the ballot, likely on abortion of the statewide ballot issue, and likely on redistricting. The Secretary of State just announced that he's going to try to change the law to require 60% rather than 50% plus one majorities to change the Constitution or change the law. So they're, they're always looking for an angle. Uh, the Democrats this year won the State Board of Education for the first time in some time. The Republicans are already moving in the legislature to take responsibility from the State Board of Education and put it in the governor's office. So it's always to them, as it is for McConnell in Washington, what do we do to gain more power? And when you have a political party like Ohio does, as scandalous as it is, a $60 million bribery case starting in January is going to be in the court. A bribery case, $60 million, the Speaker of the House allegedly took a bribe. You see what we're up against. Again, no whining, but we know what we're up against and we're fighting back. Wasn't there a referendum on redistricting that the, the voters passed that was supposed to be a nonpartisan non you know political redistricting method and and yet those district lines weren't used right in in 2022 yeah. yeah you 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 know my state well and you know my state's politics and history well yes and the republicans essentially hijacked it it went to court the republican chief justice sided with the democrats in the court and struck down either four or five times i can't remember these maps that republicans kept insisting on it found a judge that would let them move forward and essentially going against the Republican chief justice and the, uh, the others on the court. So um, they, they play hardball every time. So far they win often. They're not going to win every time. And they can't continue to run the state based on that. And you know, and somebody like you knows that the answer can't be, well, they play hardball. I mean, Democrats, if they're not going to compete, if they don't play hardball, they'll never compete. Yeah. And I'll, I'll play hardball next year. I'm, I'm, I'm on the ballot in 24. Um, I will know a whole lot about who my opponents are. I, will, I, I, I never engage in unfair practices, but I, I will be aggressive. And, and in the end, it's not liberal, conservative, progressive, uh, reactionary, or this. I don't really believe it's across a left to right scale. It's who's side you on. And I will, I will always make the contrast between me and my opponent. My, my opponents, I'm sure, because it's the Republican Party of 2022, will want to privatize Medicare and Social Security and the Veterans Administration. I will, I will fight to make that contrast. I'll make that contrast on, um, on what we've done with the child tax credit. 51 to 50, uh, 2 million Ohio children benefited from the child tax credit, only for a year because we couldn't. We couldn't continue it, but we're going to continue to fight for it. So on every one of these issues, it's whose side are you on? And I know I'm on the side of the majority in Ohio every single time, and we'll continue to point that out. Well, the, the way I define 2022 was not 
Democrat versus Republican. I was democracy versus authoritarianism because, I mean, we saw all those election deniers. But anyway, let's, let me, I know we haven't even finished 2022 yet, but 2024 is staring us in the face. And the Senate map, look, it looks difficult for Democrats. They're defending 23 out of the 33 seats. And you mentioned not only your seat, but Montana and West Virginia. The New York Times wrote that Ohio Republicans were, quote, sharpening knives in anticipation of taking you on. I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but 2024 is going to be tough. It is, of course. But every, every six years is if you have a big state and one that seems to be moving a little bit more conservative. But um, And they sharpen their knives every six years. So I, I, I do my job. Uh, I'll continue to do my job fighting for, fighting for workers. I, my, my whole kind of being in the Senate is about the dignity of work. And if you love your country, you fight for the people who make it work, whether you punch a clock or swipe a badge or work for tips or, or, or you're on a salary. And uh, that, that message is always heard. And I get uh, votes across the political spectrum because they know I'll put workers first. There's no rest for the weary, is there? <laughs> That's right. Well said. Sherrod Brown is a Democratic senator from Ohio in his third term, the only Ohio Democrat in statewide office. He's the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee. Previously, he served seven terms in the House, and before that, a two-term Secretary of State. Senator Brown, um, a belated happy birthday, and thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. One more point, real quick, Ken. You call it the Senate Banking Committee. That's what it used to be called, because it was a Wall Street committee. But since I took over the chairmanship, we use the full name of the committee, Banking, Housing, Urban Affairs. And our focus is way more on housing and it is Wall Street. So I just wanted to point that out if I could. Thank you. Then I have to stop calling it health and education and welfare, right? That's changed also, hasn't it? Yeah, that's changed a little bit too. So thanks very much, Ken. It was fun being with you again. There are a few outstanding House races, and of course we have the Georgia Senate runoff that will be decided on the 6th, give or take a few weeks of threatened court challenges. But as of now, we know the Democrats will have the Senate and the Republicans will take over the House after a four-year absence. But one thing we don't know is whether the future of the Republican Party and its leader, former President Donald Trump. He was riding high during the primaries, endorsing candidates and often seeing them succeed. But many of them lost this month in high-profile races, some that would have determined control of the Senate. With his obsession over the 2020 election that was stolen from him, Many in the party decided, with a poorer-than-expected election, that it's time to move on from Trump. But we can't move on from Trump, especially in light of the two big bombshell announcements that came after the election. First, with Merrick Garland's appointment of Jack Smith to investigate the national security secrets Trump took with him to Mar-a-Lago and Trump's actions during the January 6th insurrection. And second, on Tuesday, just an hour before this interview... The Supreme Court announcement that his tax returns, Trump's tax returns, must be turned over to the House. The House has only been trying to get these tax returns since 2019. And Trump has said over and over again that he was going to release them, like here he was during a debate with Joe Biden in 2020. I called my accountants, underwrote it. I'm going to release them as soon as we can. I want to do it. And the Washington Post compiled this montage of Trump saying he'd love to release his returns, but they're under audit. Twelve years or something like that. Every year they audit me, audit me, audit me. I will absolutely give my return, but I'm being audited now for two or three years 
So I can't do it until the audit is finished, obviously. You never give a tax return when you're being audited. Do you know I get audited every single year? But I can't release tax returns when there's an audit. Because it's under audit. I'll release them when the audit's completed. Nobody would release when it's under audit. I've had audits for 15 or 16 years. Every year I have a routine audit. Under audit, when the audit's complete, I'll release them. Almost every lawyer says, you don't release your returns until the audit's complete. When the audit's complete, I'll do it. Well, I'm not releasing the tax returns because, as you know, they're under audit. As I've told you, they're under audit. They have been for a long time. They're extremely complex. People wouldn't understand them. We're under audit, despite what uh, people said, and we're uh, working that out. As I'm always under audit, it seems, but I've been under audit for many years because the the numbers are big, and I guess when you have a name, you you're audited. But uh, until such time as I'm not under audit, I would not be inclined to do that. But with the Democratic House breathing down his neck, Trump appealed for a stay to the Supreme Court, knowing that if he could delay beyond January 3rd, the new Republican House would drop its interest in his taxes. The court's unsigned decision on Tuesday changed all that. So, unlike Rupert Murdoch and others, we are not yet ready to move on from Donald Trump. Mike Murphy never had such a worry. A leading party strategist, Mike has never been with Trump to begin with. Might not be changing, but is his party? Is the break real? Will the special counsel lead to an indictment? And what's in those tax returns that he's worked so hard to conceal? Mike Murphy is here to tell us. <laughs> Welcome back to the show, Mike. Hey, Ken. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you, as always. And, you know, we, you know, when I first called you a while back uh, to, you know, to talk about this, it was going to be about you know, all things election. And we could do that, of course, but I'm fascinated by what's going on in the land of Trump. First, as I said, with the appointment of Jack Smith, and now the court's decision on his tax returns. Why don't you start with Jack Smith? What does that mean? Well, I think, you know, the future in our crazy politics now is always hard to predict, as Tuesday proved. But Jack Smith is a highly, highly competent person and tends to, like the Mountie, always get (laughs) his criminal. So if I were Trump, I'd be worried. Uh, I think they put the right guy in the job. It gives Biden some distance because he's not controlling anything. So Trump's squeals that, oh, this is all political setup, I think are going to lack traction. So uh, I think it's really bad news for Trump. Now, the real bad news for Trump is, it's my personal opinion, that he didn't. You know, there was an insurrection. He was in the middle of it. We've seen, we've seen what we've learned through the January 6th committee and all that. And we've seen that he did have secret documents like souvenirs up on the wall at Mar-a-Lago for all to see. So I, uh, I think this is yet another problem for the president. It may not even be his biggest problem, former president, I should say. Because the view inside the Republican Party after our third losing Trump election is dramatically shifting against it. So the old muscle that used to get him out of these things, I think, is atrophying at a very rapid rate. Well, you mentioned what we learned from the January 6th committee. And, you know, given what the Justice Department may have found out on its own, uh, is an indictment a possibility? Is it, is, is it a likelihood? I think one of the reasons that Trump declared is he fears an indictment, and he thinks, or his legal team does, that it's highly likely. So he did the old trick of becoming a candidate because he knows that the justice you know, organs in the U.S. are always hesitant to meddle with elections. So the quicker he becomes a candidate, maybe that throws up a little force field, but I don't think it's going to be enough. I think his crimes are too big, there's too much fatigue, and his strength as a candidate is not strong enough. So 
you know, I can't predict the future with any certitude, but I, I bet on an indictment more than I bet against it. Though it is a delicate matter, we're generally not in the business of indicting and convicting former presidents. They normally take kind of an informal plea deal and agree to go away, as uh, happened with Richard Nixon. But Trump doesn't play by the normal rules. And he doesn't go away. Kind of, and he, he can't go away. It's a psychological deal for him. You know, he'll, be, he'll literally be setting his pants on fire running around for attention if the political thing doesn't work out. So we are stuck with him for a while, but in, inside the Republican Party, he's a very different Trump uh, than he was only, uh, you know, six months ago. You know, he could set his fu- he could set his pants on fire in the middle of Fifth Avenue, and no, no, forget about that. Um, <laughs> but you know, okay, the, the, first of all, the Constitution says nothing about being under indictment as a bar from running for president, and theoretically, he could run while under indictment, right? Or even from oh, yeah. pri- even from prison. Yeah, no, I think he could. I just I can't tell you as somebody who's been never Trump since 1993 when I worked for Governor Whitman in New Jersey and we had to deal with him down in Atlantic City doing all sorts of terrible things. The the shift I've seen is rocket speed. In the old days, we never Trumpers were maybe 10% of the party and we could meet in the back room of a small pizzeria. Now we're going to have to rent a pretty good-sized stadium. I would say that 90% of the leadership class, which isn't the whole party, but the officers, the machinery, the electives have switched against Trump because they see him as an anchor around our neck. He just cost us an election we should have won. He ruins primaries. He, he creates unelectable candidates. They, they ought to name the DNC headquarters after him. So I think he's about to find a much, much tougher path. And you can see it because people are speaking up out against it, who before would have hit so, uh, you know, it's going to be a fascinating pre-primary season, and there are no shortage of people maneuvering to take him on. Did you find it fascinating that Trump went from, uh, he was a Republican hero, to a footnote on the bottom of the front page of Rupert Murdoch's New York Post? Everyone is saying they're tired of rehashing the 2020 election. Why are they they're tired now? He's been rehashing it for the past two years, but they're suddenly tired of it. Well, it's funny. The main complaint I hear whispered to me about Trump from people who were more pro-Trump before, many of them for cynical, pragmatic reasons, their argument was, look, he's a clown, but he's good at winning elections. He brings in new voters. You know, Supreme he's a great Court. dog against the Democrats. Right, exactly. But the new improved Trump or the new more damaged Trump, the, the recent Trump, is just a crazy old guy who wants to complain about January 6th and having the election stolen from him. If he were standing out in front of gas pumps, raising hell, yelling about inflation, you know, back like the 2016 Trump was a fairly good communicator, you know, the party opinion might have been more interested in him. And this was, you know, all before the elections this year, which have broken whatever hope anybody has that he would be in any way a victorious candidate, unless the Democrats nominate somebody way out there. But it's shifted overnight. I can't tell you. You know, my phone wasn't ringing much until four days ago. And I, I can't tell you many regulars like, this guy's cancer, we got to get rid of him, how do we do it? And I know RNC members who are all, go Trump, go, and are now like, do you have Ron DeSantis' number? You know, I've always liked Pence. You know, that uh, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia seems to be a hell of a governor. You think he might run? It is amazing. Uh, now, the question is, the grassroots of the party don't always love the political elected leaders. So can Trump rally them to kind of reject this? 
I, I'm not sure. I've seen polling, I'm sure you have, before the election that showed 85% of Republicans gave Trump a favorable rating, but only about half that number said they thought he ought to be the next candidate, uh, next nominee of a party. And my guess is those numbers have declined. DeSantis is having an early boom, and there are plenty of others out there. So I think we're going to have a very competitive race uh, for the nomination and that's not where we were six months ago. But I would think that that Murdoch wouldn't abandon Trump if he were if he wasn't hearing it from Fox viewers. I think that's some of that. But remember, TV executives and media executives, particularly a real true old school press baron like Rupert, they're they're not shy about the feeling that Trump doesn't work anymore. We can create a new Trump. You know, MSNBC, Keith Olbermann was the king of primetime, and then he became too difficult, and they invented Rachel Maddow and and had a very good run with a new king of kind of lefty opinion, you know, television. So uh, I think Rupert's a wise old fox. He knows Trump's a loser. Rupert's about winning. Uh, And my guess is they think they can, that the grip Trump has on their audience isn't strong enough, that the the populist conservative, quote-unquote, movement, uh, can find a new celebrity, be it DeSantis, be it somebody else. So, uh, I, no, I think they are not worried about that. Trump can corner himself on Truth Social all he wants. Trump's shown he doesn't have a lot of marketplace appeal. When he tried to set up his own version of Twitter, it fell flat on his face. So, though he will be back now, thanks to Elon on Twitter. Trump is now a loser. Elon is something else, isn't he? Yeah, no, he's, he's a piece of cake. He'll probably run next with a Kardashian just to make our politics even more depressing. But the bottom line is Trump has gone from the perception, which as you know is reality in politics, of Superman winner. Now he's the biggest loser. I did a little Twitter poll at at Murphy Mike, and I said, I think he needs a new nickname, and I threw out a couple. And the big big winner was Donald Trump, the Mara loser. Loser is kryptonite for Trump, and he's now the biggest loser in America in politics. He's proven it in three elections. You know, speaking of losers, I mean, we went into November 8th, given Biden's numbers and inflation and the border and, and, the hist- and the history of, you know, midterm elections for the president in his first midterm. And everything suggested Democrats were in deep trouble. And yet, you know, as we know, they limited their, their losses in the House, even though they lost a majority and they may have even picked up a seat in the Senate. Nobody saw that. Yeah, I'll tell you, I, I was mad at Trump before, but now I lost a few bar bets on the election, so I'm really mad. We know since World War II, the, the president's party in the House has lost an average of 22 seats in the first-term midterm. Uh, and that has been, that trend, is, other than a few elections, has been pretty universal. The last person who managed to change the topic of a midterm election from a protest vote at the new president to something else was Osama bin Laden, who in 2002, George W. Bush, post-9-11, gained a few seats. But this is historically very atypical, and we even that, the past elections, very few of them had an explosion in inflation. So this thing was crazy that Trump and his horrible candidates were able to crowbar the election away from a protest about Joe Biden and the economy to uh, these election-denying crazy Trump people are too much, uh, I'm going to rally against them. And it also appears we, we need to get some precinct data, but it looks like the fickle younger voters, who normally, as you know, only show up in presidential elections in huge numbers, 
actually did vote in the off year, many of them probably motivated by the Roe and Dodd decision on abortion. And that, too, put a big thumb on the scale. So, Well, we were wrong about that, too. Didn't we say that that faded after September? Yeah. You know, all the data said it faded. But what people need to know about polls, most people who watch elections for the fun or ideological commitment of it on both sides use polls as therapy animals. Oh, thank God Herschel Walker is going to win. Oh, thank God he's going to lose. In, in professional politics, we use polls as a roadmap to people's heads to decide what new information to inject into the campaign with our money for TV and digital, et cetera, to try to change the future outcome. So polls are never particularly 30-plus days out, super predictive. But as you well know, the politics journalism industry thrives on that. Uh, But all the historical patterns were broken, and normally that is the safe bet. You know, but this was, this time it actually was different. And that's mostly due to Donald Trump. And it was different in a very bad way for the Republicans. Can you explain to me, Herschel Walker? (laughs) Well, I have found in my career that when it's a wrong track election and people think politics is nothing's going in the right way, too much economic pain, inflation, gas, groceries, etc., they tend to give people who are highly credentialed outside of politics a lot of room. I ran Schwarzenegger's campaign for governor in 2003, and at the beginning they all said, you know, I don't think he knows anything in a focus group anyway. I don't think he knows anything about politics. I don't think he can even find Sacramento on a map. But then somebody else said, yeah, but he's got a driver. So when the Hummer limousine pulls up, he'll find it. He'll open the trunk, take out a rocket gun, and blow the damn place up. So I'm for him. So, you know, now Arnold took it seriously and did the work. Warren Buffett is his economic advisor. Herschel really isn't doing all that. He's doing a lot of investigation into Chinese clouds. But um, because of his success as a football player and the love a lot of people have for, you know, for him in Georgia, and... The fact that Georgia is a formerly red, now purple state, and people want to protest Joe Biden on the economy, you know, that Republican nomination can even lift a box of hammers. Now, we'll see what happens in the runoff uh, in December. I, I, I can argue that Warnock ought to be worried because his support is disproportionately relying on younger voters who normally don't turn out as well in runoffs. I worked for Paul Coverdale years ago in his runoff. But on the other hand, the Democrats have all the energy, and Herschel is one of these candidates that suburban Republicans look at and say, nope, can't go there, too much. Uh, they're very happy voting for Governor Kemp, but, you know, Herschel's got a lot of, a lot of breaks on him. So the poll that came out today, credible poll from Fabrizio uh, and uh, John Anzalone, uh, showed uh, Warnock a few points up. If these young voters show up, I think he'll win. That's going to be... That's going to be the fascinating one. And boy, oh boy, the knives will be out for Trump after that. Trump, they don't even want him to campaign in Georgia. He's so radioactive for his own guy. So uh, this is going to be... And then we got an RNC election coming up. There could be turbulence there. Uh, Ronna Romney McDaniel is running for re-election, but there's tremendous well-deserved criticism about the bungled campaign. So we're, we're turning into, you know, as the world turns here in the, in the GOP. And, and from my point of view, it's about time. You mentioned Brian Kemp. I was just thinking, I mean, you know, we've talked about the the Glenn Youngkins and the Nikki Haley's and the Christy Gnomes who who may be running, but but what do you think of Brian Kemp as a, a possible future star for the Republican Party or or Chris Sununu in New Hampshire? Uh, these names aren't often mentioned, but they they're they looked impressive on November eighth. Yeah, I mean, you know, you gotta give it to 
Kemp, he actually took on Trump and won big. Not a lot of politicians have done that. He's interesting. One, like Sununu, he's a governor. And it's always good when you're running for president to be a governor and be away from the Washington swamp that voters perceive. And second, you know how to run as an executive because you've been one. Uh, the, the second thing that Kemp has is he operates very easily on the populist right of the party. Some of the more anti-Trump candidates often aren't as comfortable there, and that's where a lot of the primary vote, particularly in the South. Uh, Governor Sununu is a friend of mine. We, we were up there in the summer. I know him well. I'm a donor to him. But, you know, it's a little harder for somebody like that in a Republican primary because uh, his political success, and he's had a lot of it, is based on the New Hampshire electorate, which is very different than the primary electorate you're going to find in a South Carolina. He also would blow up, much like Tom Harkin did on the Democratic side years ago, he'd blow up the early contest, because who cares about New Hampshire anymore Right. if the New Hampshire governor's running? And the New Hampshire primary incorporated, which is a formidable industry up there, would probably be, be quite unhappy. That said, I think he's looking at it, and I think he'd be, in a general election, I think he'd be hell on wheels. I think he could win. And I think he'd be a pretty good president. But uh, in the primary politics, I think Kemp will have a little more grip with the primary electorate, as would, and then you can start rattling off a, a hell of a lot of names led at the moment by DeSantis. You know, uh, you talked about uh, post-January uh, 6th. I keep thinking about pre-November 8th when when I still would have said, well, I guess Trump is the nominee. Or, but, you know, but now things, I mean, it's amazing how much has changed since the election, especially as we talked about Jack Smith and, and Trump's tax returns, um, can you possibly envision what the situation would look like in a month or two from now? I just think it's going to keep getting worse for Trump. You know, he's got all these problems. One, he's, he's the sequel, and sequels aren't as good. He's no longer interesting. His performance has declined because he's gone crazier. It's all just bitterness and grievance about the election. The tax returns are going to be highly entertaining. I think he may win a Peabody for creative writing, uh, but that's going to be revealing. And for the first time, he's got heavyweight Republicans on the record saying it's time to move on, which is what we see in the polling data. So I think that noose is going to tighten. Now, you can't, you can't take him for granted. He's like a cat or Rasputin. He has multiple lives. He knows how to crawl his way into the um, spotlight and manipulate the media. The media is obsessed with him. They will give him more attention than he deserves, except for Rupert, you know, Florida man announces. Uh, but losing the box combine it, it, it is meaningful. You know, if you just look at kind of its balance sheet, there's a lot of trouble. And th- then there's a technical thing that I know a junkie like you will like. So he had $100 million bucks in, the, in his pack. That is now an independent super pack. A lot of his staffers have run over there for two benefits. One, there's $100 million in the bank, and they can get paid well. And second, it's illegal for them to talk to Trump because the PAC is totally independent. So Trump also can no longer have the RNC rather shamefully pay his legal bills, which are not insubstantial. So the Trump presidential campaign has to go start raising money. They start with nothing. And the high-dollar world, the mega donors, they're, they're dropping from Trump you know, at, at a massive rate. I don't know if it's been reported, but I have it on good authority that the, the Uleans, a big conservative donor family in Wisconsin are going to meet with DeSantis. That's a huge loss to Trump if they get poached. Uh, And there have been several major donors who've been public saying no Trump again. So I'm starting to worry about, you know, he can low-dollar fundraise, but um, the idea he's sitting on the $100 million stack of dough, 
it's in the super PAC, but he doesn't control that. So there's some things it can do, but uh, he could be looking at a cash crunch too um, as he you know moves farther into this year. Mike Murphy is a longtime Republican strategist and one of the most astute political analysts anywhere. He's a senior partner at the public affairs consulting firm Revolution Agency, and he also co-hosts a podcast, almost as good as The Political Junkie, called Hacks on <laughs> Tap with David Axelrod and Robert Gibbs. Mike, you are the best and a pleasure always talking to you. Oh, I love this show. I tell everybody to listen to it. Uh, you're an old friend. You're unlike... A lot of people in journalism, you really know politics. Plus, you're the world's greatest button collector. That's more What's important. What's not to like? So it's always a pleasure, my friend. Always a pleasure. Mike, thank you so much. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at thepoliticaljunkie. Political Junkies made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Have a happy Thanksgiving. And please stay safe. I'll see you soon. Because I'm the tax man. Yeah.